Hello, hello. Um, welcome, everyone. Uh, my name is Sam. I am on the World Transform Steering Group, and uh, we're delighted to bring you TDWT and Open City collaboration to discuss the alternative guide to the London boroughs. Uh, this is the second time we've collaborated with Open City. So if you haven't seen it already, check out our video on what a Green New Deal might look like, which was part of our programme uh, for TWT 2020. Um, so, yeah, without further ado, let me pass you on to our uh, wonderful host for this evening, who will introduce the speakers and the discussion. Uh, it's the incomparable Finn Harper from Open City. Uh, take it away, Finn. Thanks, Sam. Um, thanks for joining us, everybody. I will say that I had my first dose of uh, Astra Z yesterday, and I am feeling a bit weird. Uh, so if I, you know, fail to be as sufficiently charismatic as you were expecting, Owen has promised to compensate for me. Uh, but thank you. It's extremely exciting to be here. Um, I'm very grateful to the World Transformed for inviting us to put together this little event. Uh, I think TWT is a fantastic organization. Um, I actually <laughs> I stopped donating to the Labour Party and put all my donations towards TWT instead uh, recently uh, because I think that the work that Sam and the rest of the team do is really fantastic. So I hope we can live up to that wider reputation tonight. Um, so I work for a charity called Open City. Uh, I'm joined by three brilliant people who came together along with a load of other people last summer at the start of the pandemic to make a very special book, The Alternative Guide to the London Boroughs, which is, um, which is pictured here and which we're going to be sort of discussing a bit about tonight. Um, if you hit the next slide, oh no, that, that is the right slide. So we made a discount code available uh, in advance of this event with a, a sort of hope that those who wanted to could get the book in advance um, to have it to sort of leaf through while we're talking. And that discount code will be active, I think for one hour after this talk. So if you haven't got the book and you do want the book, that is the most generous discount code available. Uh, so go for it. Um, the three people on the bill tonight um, are the brilliant writer and commentator Owen Haffley, who edited The Alternative Guide. Uh, he's also author of uh, numerous other books, um, including notably Red Metropolis, Socialism and the Government of London, which is published by Repeater, and which came out either just before or just after The Alternative Guide. So there's a flurry of Haffley-related London books. Uh, we also have Rosa Nussbaum, who designed the Alternative Guide, and uh, she's the designer behind many of my favourite architecture books, including this one, Project Interrupted, um, which is a, a book of, of transcribed lectures by some of the best British social housing architects, both of the kind of post-war period and of today. So if you're interested in social housing, I recommend this book. Uh, it's published by the Architecture Foundation and designed by Rosa. And Adita Chakraborty, who is the formidable senior economics correspondent of The Guardian, also working on a book, uh, which I don't know the title for, but I know that it's published by Penguin. Uh, and the three of those guys, along with a whole load of other people, um, kind of rallied around to, to create the alternative guide uh, to the London boroughs last year. Um, so what's going to happen is we're each going to make a sort of short introduction about our contribution to the book. Uh, what we were trying to do with editing it, writing for it, designing it, and that will sort of then spill over into a more kind of freeform chat about London, uh, its future, its past, the mayoral elections, 
uh, kind of where we go from here as a city. Um, what slide are we on currently, Sam? Yeah, okay, so th this slide here, I mean, if you know Open City's work at all, you probably know it for this slide, the Open House Festival, this sort of uh, mad, gregarious, citywide celebration of, of, of buildings and places and landscapes. Uh, it's been going for about 30 years. Um, it's kind of the thing that the charity is most well known for. And the whole point of this festival is to give people access to buildings and places that they're normally locked out of. So locked out of because uh, it's expensive housing, locked out of because it's uh, a private building, locked out of because it's uh, a building that's only for a certain sector of the workforce. And in this, um, this festival, the Open House Festival, uh, suddenly the doors become thrown open and people can kind of romp around all these important and interesting buildings all across the city. Um, but it's not the only thing that the charity does. If you flip to the next slide, Sam, you, you know, we also make things all around, the, all, all throughout the year, tours, models, podcasts, films, lectures, events, and so on and so forth. And so I guess what happened really was last year when the pandemic hit, uh, we realized uh, it was going to be impossible to do a kind of normal kind of festival, normal kind of version of this, 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 this festival with a normal kind of guidebook to go with it. And so instead we thought, well, you know, let's, let's still do a book, but let's do something very different, a different kind of book, focusing, focusing maybe less on those very famous buildings like the Gherkin or, or, or you know, number 10 Downing Street, uh, and look instead at the kinds of buildings that we as Londoners experience on a day-to-day -day basis, a kind of guidebook to, to London that is relevant to those who were at that time locked down in that city. So as our bubbles kind of shrank, it seemed to be less and less interesting to try and talk about these grand buildings in the center of town. And maybe the more important conversation was a bit more of a local conversation. Um, less about the St. Paul's and more about the Crisp Street clock tower, for example. Um, so, I mean, what's the next slide, Sam? And this is that book. Uh, if you flip to the next slide again, these are, uh, it's a bit small, but these are all the, the 33 different people that Owen as, as editor kind of brought together to write about their boroughs. And so there's one writer per borough and uh, it's a kind of quite an eclectic mix of people. Uh, there are politicians, there are activists, there are poets, there are architects, there are, there are guardian columnists. Um, we were really trying to give a sort of sense of um, some of the people who, who write about buildings and urbanism and development day to day in, in kind of in the architectural press or in uh, magazines like On London or, or, or States Gazette or those kinds of places, but also a kind of wider uh, coalition of, uh, of writers who will be asked to think critically about their neighborhoods, about special buildings in their neighborhoods, and to then tell us stories about those places. Um, I feel that's hopefully a kind of good introduction to, to the circumstances that led to Open City kind of creating this book in the first place. Um, I'm very kind of proud of it. I think it's uh, uh, in some ways a kind of manifesto for what I think all architectural culture should be like. So, you know, beautiful and thoughtful and, and uh, interested in how things are made and the kind of conditions in which 
things are made, but also kind of unafraid to, um, to, to be quite political, to be quite strident at times, and to engage with the kind of the bigger system that sits behind the facades of the, the kind of pretty buildings that people usually think about when they think of the historic architecture of London. Uh, and so on that note, I will pass over to the editor of that, that, that manifesto, as it were, Owen, who's going to talk a little bit about what he was trying to achieve in editing. What? Thank you. Um, so I'm always sort of prone to nostalgia at the best of times. And so I'm now going to regale you with nostalgia for a year ago, which I thought was always the nadir I would eventually kind of like end up in um, nostalgia for last week. Um, so for me, when Finn asked me to get involved, I think one of my main motivations was sort of similarly to the book I was working on on London at the time, which actually came, it was sort of written partly before, or then all of it, and then published after, so it sort of bookends it for me, um, was kind of about the sort of strange sort of political limbo that London seemed to be in, and a sort of, a kind of impulse to sort of defend it a little bit, but not in the kind of conventional way that sort of irritates me a great deal of kind of like the greatest city in the world, all of that kind of nonsense, which for some reason every London politician has to indulge in. Um, and instead to kind of see it as, I suppose, it was sort of a thought experiment of sort of what if you write about London as if you actually like it? And also what if you write about London if you like it as it is? So not kind of wanting it to be New York, not wanting it to be Paris, um, but sort of taking this thing as rather sort of messy and complicated and often quite ugly thing and writing about that rather than um, rather than kind of like... And also there was a sort of strict psychogeography avoidance. There were to be no ghosts at any point any, in any of the book. Um, nothing, was, no, no, nothing was allowed to be liminal at any point. Um, but um, what I mean by the sort of the, 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 the nostalgia, I suppose, was I got a little bit of a feeling in spring, which may have been simply last spring, which may have simply been a consequence of the sort of um, the, the sort of dread I was feeling at the time, um, sort of like coming out the other end somehow, um, a kind of feeling that things might be changing. Um, Various things kind of um, motivated this belief. Um, lots of them were kind of a consequence of the sheer scale of despair that most people I know, I know were in um, after the December 2019 general election, which hit pretty much everyone I know in London like a kind of train, basically, just sort of rammed into them. And I think a lot of people still haven't recovered. And then sort of after that, this sort of weird sort of event happened which on one level was completely horrifying, like the 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 the, the you know the, the failure early on to lock down, obviously leads us to the deaths of of, of, of tens of thousands, um, but also there was this feeling. I guess people got overused the World War Two metaphors, but if you kind of like read people like Humphrey Jennings talking about after the Blitz, it kind of opened up this sort of space in London, in the sort of city that was otherwise sort of devoted permanently to kind of making money. It sort of opened up the sort of space that you kind of think in and kind of experience a new kind of city because of it. And I kind of had the feeling a little bit in April and May and June last year that this was sort of happening. And there are various reasons for this. 
Um, one of them were the sort of temporary things that were brought in, um, and some of the and, and some of the areas that have been particularly appalling recently in London. So the the, the temporary ban on evictions, the rehousing of rough sleepers. Um, you know, these were both things that were considered to be absolutely impossible, and then suddenly they were done almost overnight. Um, one of the other things is obviously um, related to climate change, the fact that, you know, I live under a flight path, as many people do in, in London, and suddenly there were no planes in the air. Again, they're kind of like, oh, you could just stop doing that. It could just stop. Um, there was, you know, a similar sense with, 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 with traffic. You know, there was so much less of it, and people kind of like were using kind of streets and public spaces much more actively than they, than, than they were beforehand, you know, particularly when the restrictions were lifted somewhat. You know, people would just flood into the parks, which was, all, you know, very, very nice to see. And um, despite the fact there are always some sort of snoopers claiming that, you know, before it turned out that it was completely safe to be in a park, that these people were COVID idiots, but fuck those people. Um, and there was, you know, one, the, my own sort of introduction to the book ended up being quite a lot about the sort of communal space at the back of my block of flats, which was built by the Metropolitan Borough of Camberwell in the late 40s, early 50s, I think, on the site of a V2 rocket. So, again, that was sort of a world war, of a site, the place that had been destroyed by a V2 rocket. So, again, I think there's um, the World War II thing going on there. Um, but anyway, this was a sort of space which, in the kind of years I'd lived here, um, never seemed to be used. It had been divided up, I presume, in the 80s into allotments, which nobody used, which was left to rot, and there was a sort of extreme sort of sense of neglect there. And then suddenly during those months, people started to hang out in this open space and people actually started to use this open space. And I thought this was kind of quite exciting. Um, some of these things have still continued, but there's been, I think, a great sense to kind of uh, put the genie back in the in, in the box, as it were, on things like homelessness and climate change and traffic with, uh, I think, uh, pretty grim uh, judgment on low traffic neighbourhoods that came out a few months ago. There's been very much a kind of like, no, we're not going to do any of that. Piss off. Um, and I get a sense very much of an opportunity that was wasted there. Um, but I may be wrong. Um, so going along with that was the sort of idea of concentrating purely on the boroughs. And one of the reasons for concentrating purely on the boroughs was sort of one of necessity. But one of the things that the um, that the pandemic had done was um, sort of make the city of London and the city of Westminster disappear, which of course is what we've always wanted. We all event, we all long for the city of London and the city of Westminster to disappear and for London to be free. I think this is what your kind of London independence type, so the, the sort of Northern independence type people don't really get, is that you know we tend to hate Westminster and the square mile as much as they do, except we don't then attach to it a sort of identity politics of whippets. But um, Going along with that, there's a kind of um, the sense that, you know, that this kind of greatest city in the world thing was the thing that sort of aimed at Londoners, that, you know, that, 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 that most people don't live in this greatest city. It's a kind of, it's a sort of myth that's basically used to kind of do down the actually existing London. Um, and if you kind of see London, then, therefore, as a city among many, if you see London as a city like Manchester as a city and like Glasgow as a city and like Dublin as a city, just as a city among many, um, and then treat it as a place where people live. It's, you know, the, the necessary place to start is obviously uh, the boroughs. Um, I'm not actually a huge fan of the boroughs as institutions. I, I think they, I, I think we could do with them having considerably less power and the 
uh, sort of overall government of London having a lot more, um, as you can see in sort of weird things like Kensington and Chelsea essentially trying to abolish cycling. Um, but there's a kind of um, feeling that, that by doing that, you could kind of treat London as this kind of residential city and in so doing kind of remove the centre and start from the periphery out inwards. So quite deliberately, partly because of sort of the alphabet, but partly because I thought it would be fun, um, the book starts in Edgware, um, starts with an essay by Fatima Ahmed about growing up in Edgware. And there are chapters on the city of London and city of Westminster because they are also London boroughs, but they are about the sort of residential spaces in them, which in the case of the city is the Barbican because there aren't really any other residential spaces in the city. But in the case of Westminster, because Westminster is actually quite a large borough with a large working class population, uh, the essay is by Hazel Soy Wilds on the uh, Liston Green, Liston Grove estate, um, which is one of my favourite essays in the book. And, and, and it is great on what it's like to kind of, you know, basically grow up in a sort of dilapidated social housing estate, um, sort of ignored or attacked by the local council, but also to be able to walk to Hyde Park. And that kind of thing with, with with London, which again a lot of people outside London don't get, that thing of like poverty being constantly cheap, uh, poverty and wealth being constantly cheap by jowl is such a such an important part of the of the experience of living in this city. Um, so, I suppose the the, the other thing was uh, one about the sort of of London and in London question, which I think are quite different questions. I'm obviously not from London. I am from the South Coast metropolis of Southampton. Um, and I was quite sort of conscious of that and so wanted to have most of the book, or then all of the book, being Londoners, people that are actually from London. And I don't mean that in a kind of like people that are actually from London but live in Essex way. I mean people that are actually from London that live in London, which is a slightly different question. Um, and so they predominate, although obviously there are a lot of people in the book who um, have come into the city because, you know, the actual, again, the actual existing London is about half people from London and half people that have come in from elsewhere. So I tried to kind of achieve a bit of a balance on that. And there's also, I wanted a mix of people who were, sort of finally, I wanted a mix of people who were um, talking about their own neighbourhood and people that weren't, that were kind of taking an idea and, and, and seeing where they'd go with with that. So a lot of it is people writing about their immediate circumstances. Often people who, like me, were were, were, were shielding during the during the first stage of the pandemic. And so we're literally able to just walk around the block. Um, but also people that, you know, that, that, that didn't have uh, much of a connection. Um, the essay on Bexley is written by uh, Josie Sparrow, who I believe still has not been to Bexley, but I thought would be um, a really good person to have to write about William Morris's Red House and about the kind of ethics of, of, of preserving um, a house like that, an aspic, a house like that that isn't actually lived in as a house anymore. So, um, so yeah, there's all sorts in there. And um, I think I've said my bit, so I'll stop there. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Owen. Um, we're now going to hear from Rosa, who designed the book. I guess graphic designers rarely are heard from in these kind of like book review discussion type forums. But um, I think that's a real shame. I feel like um, in how we communicate, whether we're communicating about 
political ideas or, or architecture, thinking about visual and tactile communication is, is absolutely as important as, as the written word. And um, Rosa was the, the, my, my first and only uh, call for uh, designing this book and brought an extraordinary amount to it, not just designing um, the pages and, and choosing the paper and the, the finishing, but also did a lot of the, the kind of picture research, um, which actually forms like an enormous component of the kind of editorial feeling and flavor of the, of, of the book. Um, so I'm very happy that you could join us tonight, Rosa, and I'll, I'll stop talking, hand over to you so you can tell us about the book's design. Thank you. Thanks, Finn. Um, yeah, thank you for inviting me. You're right, I never get invited to these kind of things. <laughs> and thanks to Sam and to the World Transform for hosting tonight. Um, so I spend a lot of my time designing architecture books, which as a general rule is a pretty sluggish corner of the publishing industry. Uh, where it's not really uncommon for a book to take years and years to produce. And that kind of pace can be both frustrating and enjoyable, I suppose. But what it does mean is that it's quite unusual for me anyway to work on a book that doesn't have the kind of lag between conception and production that makes it difficult for a book to be reactive in a way that, say, a newspaper or a magazine can. So before tonight, I was looking back through my calendar and by my reckoning, the first meeting we had about this project was on the 8th of June, at which point there was no content in place. And like, I mean, no content. There was no text, no image, no format, nothing. And yet somehow, and I'm really still not quite sure how, we were on press by the 24th of August with nearly 300 pages of what has turned out to be this amazingly rich document about London, um, as Owen has introduced already. So I think what's really quite special about this book is how it manages to present a kind of sustained engagement with a specific subject that's more commonly associated with the sort of drawn out process of making a book. But at the same time, it was produced in such a compressed period that it spoke and still speaks to the particularly unique set of conditions that were have been created by the pandemic um, and with books I think after it's all said and done and you're holding it in your hands it's quite easy to say oh well you know of course this is the only way you could have done it uh, this is the only way it could have looked but that certainly wasn't the case here and I remember our early conversations as maybe particularly with me and Finn were, were about format you know about how the object should feel to the reader should it be I think actually when Finn first rang me it was like you were talking about it as a magazine, actually, not a book. And then slowly we started to refer to it as a book, um, which seems like a sort of small distinction, but actually it's quite significant, I think, for, in terms of how I think about it in relation to the design. Uh, yeah, so we we're thinking about how to structure this diversity of material in a way that was cohesive, but then also surprising. Uh, and just as an introduction, I wanted to talk briefly about scale, because it's something that I was thinking about a lot as I worked on the design. And with most of us having been confined in our homes and neighborhoods for the last year, which for me is a one bedroom flat in Forest Hill in Southeast London, there's been a sort of laser beam focus on the place where you live and on the immediate surroundings uh, where maybe you're paying a bit closer attention to small details than you might do normally. So in the layouts, that plays out as a sort of reversal of hierarchy, if you like, where what is usually big is small and, and vice versa. So we begin each chapter with a supersized image of a key, um, which you've seen a couple of 
kind of slides back that correlates to compass points in northeast, west London, etc. And from there, each borough is represented by an essay and a small selection of buildings. So in amongst that, we also made the decision to add some select artifacts from the Museum of London's collection, uh, which are like the keys, small objects blown up to sort of grandiose proportions. And in selecting those images, I was looking for things that maybe could speak to a wider story or a social history that had been thrown into sharp relief by the pandemic. So one example is a, a cash bag that was used by a chimney sweep. And that then became a way to talk about the devaluing of cleaning and maintenance work in the city at a time when it was suddenly the only thing anyone was thinking about. Um, and the other thing I wanted to mention relating to the visual material that's been picked up on is, yes, okay, the book is primarily text-based, but there are more than 200 illustrations in there as well. And interestingly, I think, again, because of the, the circumstances, a lot of the decisions we've made about how to illustrate the pages were born of necessity, right? Like all archives were closed. Of course, we couldn't really commission anything. You couldn't go into a building to photograph it. So we relied quite heavily on both on existing digitized collections, but also on authors to provide their own material. And in several cases that meant including quite personal imagery, like and Owen already mentioned the, the essay on Westminster, which is illustrated with a childhood photo of the author, Hazel Sawyer Wiles, playing on a communal walkway in the estate. Um, and that we ended up with such a broad range of historical and contemporary personal and archival material, I think really added to the book, really added a sense of layering of, of multiplicity of, of narrative. Um, and the feeling that comes through quite powerfully, I think looking at the spreads is one of many Londons, you know, all of them equally valid and surprising and, and not in the least bit homogenous. And so all of this is also happening at the scale of a person moving through the city, in some cases quite literally, where authors were sort of walking and describing and, um, and writing about that. And one of the decisions we made quite early on with the design was to cut rounded corners on the book, which was maybe a kind of superfluous decision. Uh, some things are very justified and some things sort of just feel right. And the, the rounded corners were a nod to a kind of pocketbook of field notes, a notebook, if you like. Um, so hopefully the book has that feeling as an object to, to the reader. Uh, it was designed to be compact enough that you could carry it around, use it like a guidebook. It's a soft cover, you know, it's not too precious, but it's also possible to curl up with it in a chair and, and read it cover to cover. And I think that mix of scale, you know, of texture, of, of the narrative, that's what makes it a really special thing. Um, and I hope the design reinforces that for the reader. And um, yeah, that's all I really wanted to say. If, oh, and if, if repeater are, are listening, uh, you could encourage them to <laughs> take a more adventurous approach to graphic design for your next book. Um, uh, we're next going to hear from Aditya, Aditya uh, who wrote the Haringey chapter, which is titled London's Next Big Opportunity. Uh, we're not just going to talk about Haringey, I promise. Uh, we'll be able to uh, expand the whole city, but maybe you could kind of introduce what you were hoping to tackle through that chapter. Thank you, Finn. Uh, thank you, Sam. Thank you, DWT. Rosa, that was fascinating to listen to. Uh, I've held that your 
book in my hands for a, for a few, quite a number of times and uh, to hear about some of the details and how quickly you put it together really really interesting um so i should say that um i didn't necessarily want to write about haringey because i'm not from haringey uh, i am from the suburb next door to tottenham edmonton i was born right on the border uh with tottenham in north middlesex hospital uh uh, and I still live in the borough of Enfield um, because I'm a creature of low ambition. Um, but Owen said that someone had already taken uh, the borough of Enfield for this uh, book. And he asked if I would write about Haringey instead um, because uh, of columns I've written about Haringey and gentrification. And in particular, something called the Haringey Development Vehicle, which I'll come back to in a second. Um, I should, of course, have taken vast umbrage at this and refused, but um, I've long been a distant admirer of Owen Hatherley, uh, in particular his tweets, which I'd recommend to you, the tweets about Keir Starmer, particularly fine. Um, so I took it on. And the thing I will always associate with Haringey is um, essentially uh, it was the zone that I always passed through. Edmonton doesn't have a tube station uh, so if I wanted to bunk off from school and go shopping I'd have to go to Seven Sisters in Haringey but even before that my mother taught in Hackney in Clapton um, and to get there, we'd either have to bus it in the early days or go by car and go through Seven Sisters, go through Tottenham. Um, and the bits of Haringey, the bits of Tottenham that I recall are never the sorts of things that would come up in your normal open city weekend, you know. So you, I guess in you might have a kind of open access to Bruce Castle or Bruce Castle would certainly be a visitor monument. Uh, but for me, uh, the big thing in, in uh, was actually Bruce Grove Market, where my mother used to make me wait while she would get all the groceries uh, for, for dinner. Uh, and St. Anne's Hospital. Uh, hospitals are obviously one of the most, you know, one of the most important forms of institution that any of us will ever use. And yet they never really come up in discussions about the architecture that we value. Um, and thinking about that, um, thinking about the way in which I would, if I were, you know, if I had money saved up, I would go to Seven Sisters, go to London. This has all been the bit of a uh, school day when you're meant to be doing general studies or something like that. But obviously, I wasn't there for that. Go shopping, come back. And if I had money left over, I would nip into this giant, um, what seemed to be giant at the time, um, reggae music store called Body Music, which was right opposite the Tesco's. And I'd never, ever uh, allow myself to buy any food. I'd use whatever money I had to buy a record of some kind. And I'd go to Body Music. Or um, there was a uh, Black Power bookstore. And I ended up buying books about Malcolm X from there. Um, things which I just didn't know at the time that I wanted or needed, but would always end up spending money on. This leads me around to thinking about Haringey as, it, as I've been writing about it, as a kind of site of politics. Some of the most important, uh, I think, some of the most important 
battles around housing have been fought in Haringey over the past decade. The biggest of them all has been the um, battle over the Haringey de development vehicle, which was a plan by uh, the Labour-run council from and the leadership from, I think now two, two leaders ago, a lady called Claire Coba. Um, and the, the big idea was to take every, pretty much every scrap of public land, public building that um, Haringey Council had, um, bung it all into a bag, do a joint venture with a huge developer called Len Lease, um, and uh, effectively to move this, um, to turn this into kind of a investment vehicle. Um, whole swathes of high streets, um, public buildings would be knocked down and redeveloped. Um, and, so, and in particular housing. And this was all being um, pressed ahead with very little in the way of consultation, um, as even the council's own consultation reports would would say, that, that there'd been very little uh, consultation on knocking down this housing estate. Most people in the housing estate didn't know what was about to hit them, um, but still the council leadership wanted to press on. Um, in the end, the battle over the Haringey development vehicle uh, culminated in uh, Claire Coba being ousted. Um, and I think the, the ripples from th that particular fight are still being felt. Um, the leader who replaced her was ousted, I think, just last week. Um, but one of the things that really stood out to me when I was thinking about, um, when I was reporting on, on, on the Haringey development vehicle, was um, the kind of the way in which residents talked about Harringate was completely opposed to the way in which both developers and the council talked about it. So the council, uh, um, both officers and councillors went to a, a property fair in Cannes and they took along a, a brochure. And I think it was called something like Tottenham and Wood Green, London's next big opportunity. And the idea was to try and turn this part of outer London into part of inner London, just like Hackney, just like Islington, just a little bit further out. And you leaf through the brochure that they were passing out to property developers and, and executives, and financiers. And there were pictures of kind of geezers with cloth caps drinking pint out drink, drinking out pint glasses. There was a uh, I think a, a double paid spread, I think, of a skinny white model. Um, I, in all the years I've been through Tottenham, I've never seen a skinny white model walking down Tottenham High Road. Um, and, and essentially, I can, I, I think maybe there was just one or two um, photo opportunities afforded to black and minority ethnic people in the entire booklet. This is about one of the, this is a booklet about one of the most diverse postcodes um, in Britain. I think even it, it was actually named Britain's most diverse postcode at one point, N15. Um, and what one of the residents said to me um, during the, the, the this big battle over the Haringey development vehicle, the HDVs, it was known for short, um, was they talk about us as though where we live is just a brownfield site to build upon. Um, that's not by any means uh, restricted to Haringey um alone um you can go to peckham you can go to parts of enfield you can go to lot you know lots of parts of london when they are up for redevelopment will get talked about so no one lives there they're a tabula rasa 
for the property industry to come in, do their thing, change them up, put um, wildly expensive new housing on them and 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 bring new people in. And <clears throat> someone who writes about economics, there's a kind of journey in places like Haringey, Tottenham and Edmonton, which have got very similar histories. These are places of light industry historically. The 20th century for in Britain was uh, places like Edmonton, Tottenham. These places were absolutely central to the light industrial economy that Britain had uh, between the wars and just after the wars. This is where Tottenham, Edmonton, where the furnitures were, uh, you know, furniture was made, where televisions were made, where um, gas cookers were made. Um, and what's happening in these areas now is they're going for a, uh, a very, very rapid process of going from making to retail, retail parks, big boxes facing each other, um, Ikea, Tesco's, you know, these sorts of shops. Um, and now those, those bits of retail are being squeezed out and housing is coming in instead. So you're going from making to shopping to speculating. Um, and it's a journey that you're seeing played out at very fast speed on the outskirts of London in particular. But it's a journey that the entire country um, has gone on. And again, the political repercussions of that are something that we are dealing with more and more, whether it's through the prism of Brexit or even through the elections that we saw a couple of weeks ago. Um, so that's what I wanted to talk about. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, shall we bring the, the the whole team back back together? Um, I, I, we'll, we'll talk about the mayoral election, which has obviously just happened. And I, I want to kind of get into with you, but um, I do. I wanted to sort of stick with the Haringey development vehicle briefly because I think it relates a little bit to Owen's other book, Red Metropolis, which is sort of municipal socialism. Because sort of from the outside, maybe I'm, I'm not an expert on the on the development vehicle. It seemed like a bit of a win for for the kind of insurgent left of of Corbynism that you know Claire Cober was ousted and this sort of new generation of, of much more kind of grassroots um, uh, uh, local politicians came forward and they now control Harringay. Um, as far as any you know, uh, councillors can control the borough within our. The borough system. So I wondered, Owen, if you know, is, is is that a kind of contemporary example of what you're talking about in Red Metropolis of of, of kind of proper left wing politicians getting in and now being able to wield some power, or is it more complicated than that? And is actually Claire Cobert, you know, leaving and someone else coming in not that something we should celebrate after all? What's your take on the kind of the ousting? Oh man. Um, well <laughs> One thing not mentioned really is the subsequent fate of, um, or not mentioned just now rather, is the the subsequent fate of the market at um, Ward's Corner and Seven Sisters, um, which to cut a very long story short, and obviously lots of you know any lots of people in London north of the river who would be watching TW thing TWT thing will know all of this backwards. I think they they squandered a lot of their political capital that they'd built up um, opposing the HTV on um, then going ahead with the previous administration's plans to demolish that market. Um, so I suppose it's that sort of social democracy working as it usually does, which is you stop something absolutely terrible 
And the HDV was absolutely terrible. Was you know uh, 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 an, uh, an, uh, an absolutely monstrous idea. Um, and then you do something a bit shit. And I, I don't think what you know what was being proposed for the market is anything like on the same scale as the HDV. And so I saw some people sort of suggesting that they were comparable, and that's just not serious. Like there's a difference between like closing a market and gentrifying the space on it, and gentrifying every working class space in the borough. Like they're not the same. But there was a terrible failure of political imagination from a lot of the councillors in question. And, you know, some of it proved that the left can do jobs for the boys just as well as anyone. Um, that said, I do think it was an improvement. And they have been building council housing rather than demolishing council housing. So, you know, there is some progress in there, but that progress is, you know, is sort of hard won and difficult. But all that said, I do think it was really important it happened and it did show that you can actually stop a bad thing from happening. And that's always the kind of first stage in in politics, isn't it? That you know, you can kind of you sort of successfully resist a thing. And the much more difficult question is then proposing something better in its place. And so far, although there has been some moves, it's that that that's been the thing that's been much more difficult for um for for left-wing people in London local government. Um, much more difficult, I would add as well, than it is in places where the economies are somewhat different. Um, you know, in somewhere like Preston, where basically big capital had said, we don't care what happens to you, we're going to let you rot. It was quite easy for the left in Preston, in a sense, to kind of go, we've got this great idea for what we're going to do instead. And to be allowed to do it, and be allowed to do it fairly unencumbered. Um, whereas for somewhere, you know, like a London borough, where the price of land, the price of quite a small part of land, you know, can be the price of a small island somewhere else in the world. And, you know, where you can speculate on it and the property fairs of the globe and you can kind of advertise it for sale and God knows where. Um, the temptation of sort of speculation and playing the property market or hoping the property, you can get a bit of money out of the property market and spend it elsewhere is so strong that um, it's actually made it's actually made things much more difficult in London and elsewhere. I think one of the really, really big... Um, someone's trying to call me, excuse me. Um, one of the really big... I'm just trying to switch this off. Um, one of the really big um, things that's really not noticed with all of the kind of red wall chat is actually the most successful left-wing councils in Britain are outside of London. They are in Preston, in, post -industrial, in the post-industrial north. They are in Salford, in the post-industrial north. And they're in North Ayrshire, in post-industrial central belt Scotland. Um, London doesn't really have much to, to, kind of, to, to put up against that, despite the fact that supposedly the Labour Party is London-centric or the left is London-centric, which I think is at best a half-truth, that actually the left has actually been quite bad at fighting for London and Londoners. And the London left has been quite bad at fighting for London and Londoners. Um, and in many ways, this book is about something else. But one of the kind of things I wanted it to do was, you know, intervene in that a little bit. Uh, I mean, okay, so, I mean, you said earlier that um, uh, the uh, people outside of London don't always understand that in London there's as much frustration with Londonness as there is outside of London. 
And I thought that was an interesting thing to to, to kind of try and dig into. Like, why why is that the case? Why is it? Um, yeah. And I was looking at you know thirteen percent of of British people live in London, right? Um, which you know that, that might seem like a, a big number to you, might seem a small number to you, but that that's that's how many people. People living in Britain live in London. Now, in the USA, only 2% of people live in New York City. And if you wanted to create an American city that had 13% of, Amer of Americans in, you would need to add together the populations of not only New York, but also Chicago, San Francisco, and the largest 40 other cities in the whole of America to get to a city that was big enough to have 13% in. So that makes me sort of think that potentially, uh, okay, so London might not be the greatest city in the world, but it is pretty weird. Like, is there a kind of uniqueness or a strangeness to London in how it relates to its its host country that is maybe driving some of these misunderstandings? What is your take on, on the, the kind of mis, um, the kind of social imaginary that's built up around the, the spectre of, of London? I, I, if, I would come in, if I could come in on that, I think, there is a thing that happens in the media and in sort of just the way, it's a sort of one of those sort of intangible things that I remember saying something like this on Twitter once and getting cancelled for it by like weird teenagers who like Lisa Nandy. But um, there was a kind of, there's a thing that happens where it's sort of treated as if London is the only city a lot of the time. And that's that, that's something that's that, that local government boundaries um, causes it's something that I, kind, I think a kind of uh, kind of collective cringe in a lot of the rest of the country kind of um, causes, but it's also something that absolutely decades of underinvestment in infrastructure and jobs and you know uh, and just the simple kind of physical fabric of places in the rest of the country is caused. So you know, yes, London is really really big. Um, but two and a half million people live in Greater Manchester, you know, about the same amount live in Birmingham, the black country in Coventry, about two million people live in Greater Glasgow, about the same amount live in, live in the kind of Leeds-Bradford conurbation. Um, more than a million people live in the Southampton-Portsmouth conurbation, I'm, I'm duty-bound to point out. And very few of these places have the sort of, um, it's the sort of technocratic argument, right? Um, very, very, very few of these places have the kind of um, infrastructure that somewhere like that would have in France or Germany. Um, you could compare Manchester to somewhere like Munich or um, or uh, Marseille, I think, as kind of like second cities in um, you know, as as, as 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 sort of second cities in countries that are roughly the same size. Germany's a bit bigger. France is about the same size in terms of population. Um, Manchester's had to fight this incredibly kind of long-winded battle in order to be able to regulate its buses, whereas Munich has about sort of seven metro lines running underground. You know, it has it has electric trains. It has wonderful things. You know, all of these. There's, there's a whole lot of kind of ways in which um, smaller cities, which are still by the general standards of Europe very very big, are underinvested in and suburbanized and are kind of you know, uh, uh, kind of treated as sort of second-rate places by by successive governments. And here, actually, although I kind of find a lot of the shtick quite irritating, I find quite a lot of the sort of northern nationalist stuff quite convincing, insofar as a lot of work has to be done to convince people that Newcastle is provincial or that Liverpool is provincial. These places are not provincial. They are big cities. They are, you know, they are no more provincial than Marseille or Barcelona or Krakow. 
um, but they're treated like they are, and that's a problem. Um, so there's also a thing I think about the kind of relative size thing. I mean, yes, compared to the USA, but the USA is so much bigger than Britain. Um, it's actually, you know, quite close in terms of like how it relates to the rest of the country with Paris, except Paris doesn't also get to dictate whether or not Lyon can build a tram line. Here, Britain, you know, in, in Britain, you know, London does get to dictate whether or not a tram line can be built in Leeds. And that's obviously, you know, a sign of a, a system that doesn't really work for places that aren't London. Aditya, do you want to, I, I feel duty bound to point out that the, the Preston model, Paint Your Town Red book came out last week, also by Repeater, Owen's publisher. Um, are you sort of, is that, um, is that model sort of, are we saying it's totally impossible in London because of the kind of crazy land values? I'd be interested to get a, a senior economics correspondent's take on local wealth building um, and whether that's viable for, for Harringay or another borough. Um, I should say I'm, I'm, a, I'm a commentator, not a correspondent. Correspondents, reporters do much more honest, noble <laughs> jobs than, than mere opinionators like me. Um, just to just to do a quick fact check on, on some of this stuff, Harringay actually did have Owen did have a community wealth building strategy akin to Preston. They talked about it a lot. Um, some of the people who were most up in arms about the HDV um, were, for some reason, they they, they were also very senior under Claire Cober. So how much of that was opportunism, how much of it was deeply felt antagonism to this project, I don't know. Joe Ejiofor, who's just been ousted, was Claire Cober's deputy um, and yet moved in to become the, the anti-Cober candidate. Um, I think to deal directly, I want to deal directly with your point about Preston and then I'd quite like to yoke uh, this, this discussion about the Red War in London together if I can. Um, there is clearly a, uh, a really different set of circumstances between Preston and London. And one of the things I find infuriating about uh, some members of Labour left, shall we say, is that they just think, oh, well, what you do is you've got this model called Preston, right? And you do the Preston model up and down the country. It's not a model. It's an experiment. It Bits of it work, bits of it don't work. It's still in progress. New things are happening the entire time in Preston. They they are trying to open a community bank. Uh, they've got a license for it. They're trying to open more cooperatives. Uh, Matthew Brown, who's the council leader there, um, is tremendously imaginative. And a lot of what's happening in Preston is down to people like him working extremely hard uh, to make it happen. It's not as simple as saying there's a there's a cookbook and you just you know you, you just use this recipe. But yes, being in London means that what works in Preston isn't the same thing. Owen is completely right. The geography of Preston, where, where it's two and a half hours on a train from London and just over an hour's drive from Manchester, so it's between these two big poles, means that it's stuck in a kind of no man's land, which makes it just right for this kind of uh, experimentation. The same can't be said about Harringay or other places in, in London. That said, there are places that there are things that councils like Islington are trying to try and keep more more of the wealth that's created uh, for for the benefit of local people. 
Um, but I want to I want to try just try and yoke together this idea of the red wall as it's been as it's now being called in in the press and uh, among political professors um, and what's going on in London. Um, <clears throat> the red wall is always talked about as being this kind of place, a homogenous place, which stretches from somewhere from the Midlands all the way up to the border of Scotland. One really helpful thing to do would be not to think of it as a place, but think of it as a process. I see I see what's happening with the Red Wall as a process of Labour effectively not listening to its voters and treating them with a certain amount of contempt. So they parachute in people like David Miliband, Tony Blair, you know, into the into these safe constituencies. They do very little for them when they're losing their industry. They let steel plants go down. They, um, they they allow interest rates to go up because that's what contains asset price inflation in the South. Um, and they're explicit about all of this um, because in that quote that nearly everyone on the Labour left knows, Peter Manson says, there's nowhere for these people to go. Well, it turns out that there is. First says UKIP and then they're staying at home and there may even be a bit of voting for Boris. I don't see why any of those dynamics should not apply to London. And one of the things I found fascinating about Owen's book, uh, Red Metropolis, which I think is also terrific, um, is that he plays with this idea about a city being both radical, but also that in that kind of that radicalism expressed by its voters from time to time being misused or wasted by the people in charge. And it's the sections on... Um, uh, Sadiq Khan um, and 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 the GLA that I find, I mean, all all of it's very interesting. But the sections of Sadiq Khan and and GLA and and, and what's happened to Labour London uh, more recently, I, I think, incredibly suggestive because what Owen I, I think is 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 kind of throwing out is the idea that Labour that, that London, while it is very left wing now, could also not be left wing at some point in the future. Um, I would be willing to bet that you could well start up a, a new party in the south of England, which is socially liberal and in favour of ripping up planning law so that you can just build houses everywhere. And I think that would get a certain section of the vote and would act on the political system in the same way that UKIP has acted on the political system. So UKIP gets seen as a single issue party and yet somehow it changes the entire complexion of the Tory party which changes its complexion from blue to purple. I see no reason why a planning light, socially liberal party would not change the complexion of our park system as well. The Red Wall is not a place, it is a process. The crumbling of the Red Wall is a process that's happened and I see no reason why it shouldn't happen across the UK. That's very interesting and um, possibly the perfect note then to talk about the election and I don't mind saying that I was totally wrong in calling the the mayoral election I assumed it would be you know Steve Khan would win or come very close to winning on the first round and in fact it was pretty tight and um, I guess that sort of took me surprised not not necessarily because I thought uh, Sadiq Khan was like a killer candidate, but more that Sean Bailey, the, the Tories candidate, seemed to be so pants that at times it felt like a kind of elaborate piece of performance art or something. You're like, is this really a, a campaign? Um, so for him to still get 44.8% once all the kind of second preferences are tally tallied feels sort of astonishing. 
Um, and so I, I guess the question is, you know, what, what is your take on the election? Does this kind of uh, very strong performance from an extremely rubbish Tory candidate tell us that actually London is not so much of a red metropolis after all? And in fact, is 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 very really close to being a uh, a blue city. Does it speak to a wider malaise in the, the Labour Party? I'm, I'm sure it, it could do, but you, maybe if we start with Rosa on, on your kind of um, takeaway from the election and then we'll get Owen and Aditya in as well. Well, I mean, I'm under no illusions that anyone has come to this event to hear my take on London politics, so I'm going to keep it very short, but I can only speak to the election in as much as I yeah, have lived in London for seven years and uh, my entire political life has been one of disappointment effectively, just a series of uh, terrible results one after the other. So I can't say I was surprised that it was a close run thing, although I agree with you, you know, I, I had hoped it would be easier than it was in the end. Um, in terms of, yeah, kind of speaking to broader politics in London, but well, I'm currently a resident of Lewisham and have been for um, yeah five years. Uh, I'm trying to move to Lambeth, and it's interesting reading about sort of different councils, different housing schemes, how things are run, and all of these are Labour councils, and yet all of them are um, incredibly flawed. And I suppose. I don't really have I have an answer. I feel like I continue to vote Labour. I continue to believe in that, but um, increasingly, it's it's difficult to, uh, yeah, to to find to find reasons why when when things are happening at a local level. Um, so I'm just yeah one other disillusioned voter. <laughs> <laughs> Low turnout. Um, Owen, is London a red metropolis? If not, could it be again? Um, so, aside from the sort of wider point, I don't think one should sort of, you know, there was, I think, an expectation because of quite a lot of the opinion polling until the kind of like about a month before the local mm -hmm. elections that Khan was going to win some absolutely gigantic kind of mega majority. And in the end, what he won was almost exactly what he'd won, first of all. Uh, in battle against Zach Goldsmith. Um, so that's not, you know, one, one could kind of exaggerate this and seeing this as a problem. Um, having a 10% lead over your rival is not a problem. That's the that's the landslide majority that the current government has, more or less. Um, so I don't, it's not, it's not a sign of enormous problems, but it's not a sign of enormous enthusiasm. Um, and you can compare it, I think, to the way that um, Andy Burnham, who, like Khan, is a, a figure of the Labour centre-left, is not Corbynite, is not socialist, um, but who has shown a bit of gumption. You know, the, 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 the kind of confrontation was with the government over, um, over the pandemic, but also over, um, over buses, have shown a kind of willingness to kind of get people behind you a bit you know to have a bit of a make a bit of a show and have a bit of rhetoric and kind of make it look like you are fighting for your people on, on behalf of your people um and and khan although he's actually quite a similar politician in a lot of ways with a similar history and actually probably in terms of the history it's probably to the left of Burnham. um he can't seem to do that and i find that really really frustrating i find his 
um, his sort of managerial kind of quietude and kind of lack of political imagination really frustrating because in many ways he's a much more interesting guy than he sort of seems to make out. Like if you kind of look at, you know, let's compare the human rights lawyers, um, comparing him with, with, with Sir Keith. Um, like he has quite a spicy list of like um, of cases that he's fought. He's fought a lot of very controversial human rights cases and won a lot of them. He's an interesting guy um, from a wonderful kind of Red Vienna style estate in Ellsfield, um, which people should go and look at. Although that's not really his own. He can't be credited with that. Um, and yet he wins. And what does he say? You know, um, I think London is the greatest city in the world. Please don't say that. And um, and I want to encourage tourism from the rest of the country to London. Why the fuck should we care? Why on earth should we care that you're bringing more people to Madame Tussauds? Like you've he fought that election to a large degree on rent control. And someone who was a, a smart politician who wanted who looked oh well Burnham up the road has managed to get like nearly seventy percent. I was expected to get that and said I've got this. Maybe I should you know. <laughs> <laughs> look at look at being a bit more of a public politician and look at kind of being more of a controversial politician, particularly given these people will always hate me anyway. These people in Bexley will always vote for a psychopath like Sean Bailey rather than vote for me because they are that racist. Um, instead, you know, he has this kind of like, you know, instead of kind of going, I fought an election on rent control, now I'm going to fight the government on rent control, which immediately all the people that voted for him would be like, thank you. Um, instead, he talks about you know rehosting the Olympics and about getting more tourists to London. Why on earth should we care? Um, so you know, I, I just find whoever is advising him on these things should immediately be sacked. Um, and just that kind of again, I think uh, you know, and and if you if you do take people for granted by not by, by them not feeling that you're fighting on their behalf, you get. A very similar situation to what's what's been happening, not so much in, in, in the kind of red wall, whether it's a vibe or a location or not, but you get something similar to what's now happening in Bristol, where um, where Labour have lost a council to the Greens. Mm. Um, I don't think there's much likelihood of London, or at least London zones one to four, zones five to six, I'm not quite so sure. There's not a likelihood of London zones one to four going back to the Tories anytime soon. Um, but there is perfectly a likelihood of them going to the Greens. There's a likelihood of them going to going to the far left in a lot of cases. Um, there's also, I think, a much bigger risk, which is just people stopping paying attention. You know, like people like us to forget about this, and rightly so because we got absolutely humiliated. But I remember seeing canvases in December 2019, the size of demonstrations in places like Putney and Chingford and Kensington. Um, you know, that 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 that. You can't then say to these people, we think you're all scum and racists and expect them to, to go out and vote for you or campaign for you. Um, you know, you were getting these sort of desperate emails from, from the Khan campaign and the, at, the end of, at the end of it because they weren't going to get the landslide they expected. And there was this kind of begging of like, you know, please go out onto the streets for me. It's like, well, what have you got for us? And that's the thing, you know, and, and you know, the Teesside the mayor, who obviously I think most of these people is obviously like quite malevolent. But you look at his landslide majority, and a lot of that came from him just sort of going, you know, being a very public figure, nationalizing an airport, and and you know, and being seen being seen to be publicly fighting for people. Um, and I do think that's when London has had kind of quite large sort of shifts leftward at a local level. There usually has been a bit of charisma involved. There has been people like George Lansbury 
Ada and Alfred Salter, um, Herbert Morrison, you know, uh, not exactly a figure of the left, but a very interesting figure, and Ken Livingston. It's moments like that when, you know, I mean, Ken Livingston. <laughs> but, you know, Ken Livingston in his day um, were very, very charismatic people that that, 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 that that set out to represent Londoners in this very kind of aggressive and outward-looking way. Um, so more of that would be nice. Um, okay, so we're slightly over time. Um, Aditya, I really want to get your take on the election. I also want to throw in um, a quick question from the audience. This comes from Charlie Clark, who, who asks, how do we think the fact, uh, how do we think about the fact that age is more and more divided by geography and the problem that that poses for building a progressive coalition, the radical politics of generation left being left being electorally ineffective and I guess yeah the reason I've managed to get a vaccine even though I'm not that old yet is just because that because of this age um this age division that, that Charlie's kind of talking about there so uh if we can go to you for the last word Aditya on the election in general but maybe with a kind of emphasis or an inflection on age divisions Okay, um, <clears throat> age and geography, um, I, I, think, I think I'm in the camp of those who would see that as just being, uh, well, largely being about housing uh, and jobs. And um, in London, in big cities, and it includes Andy Burnham's Manchester as well, I think, um, if you are below a certain age and you've joined the workforce um, in the past, I don't know, 10, 15 years, the chances of you getting um, a, a house of your own, buying a house, uh, are slim. The chances of you renting somewhere decent are uh, you know, diminishing. Um, and that's, I think, what a large part of that is about. Owen is completely right. I, I do wonder why Sadiq Khan hasn't gone harder on that. Uh, given that's that is so much that the focus of the London electorate. Um, my suspicion, for what it's worth, is um, if we're in a moment at which the Labour, kind of the senior figures in Labour, are increasing, kind of drifting back to the kind of the Ed Miliband phase, then then what I remember about the Ed Miliband era is that in 2014 or so you had in London a huge wave of activisms around housing. Uh, I remember going off, I, I was supposed to go off and do the Labour Party conference in Manchester, I think, uh, that autumn, and I really didn't particularly want to go. I certainly didn't want to write about it because it would be deathly dull. And for some reason, I ended up on the Carpenters Estate in Newham, where the focus um, uh, uh, single mothers decided that they would occupy a flat. And I wrote about that instead. And I remember writing, and I, I believe I believe that then, I believe it still, I, I remember thinking po politics is not happening in Westminster. It's not happening in the Labour Party conference. It's happening in places like this flat. The under Jeremy Corbyn's leadership, a lot of the, um, the, the, the radical left, the, the kind of the movement left, 
went into Labour Party. You may well see them leaving the Labour Party or keeping one foot in, one foot out and starting to go back into social movements again. And in London and other big cities, that, that will be squarely built around um, housing as one of the top issues. Fantastic. Um, do you think, I mean, do you think it was a mistake for them to get involved with the party? Should they have stayed in the social movements? Is that the sort of... Is that what I think? Yeah, yeah. Is that, are you saying that the Focus E15 mums should have... Oh, the Focus E15 mums were not never part of the Labour Party. Uh, they had Robin Wales as their mayor. Um, so they never went near, they never went near the Labour Party. Um, do I think more widely there, there was... A, I think there was a general... There was a general kind of credulousness about what Labour Party could achieve, what kind of vehicle the Labour Party is. Um, and, you know, there's a whole generation of people who've got going into politics and they're having their political consciousness formed. They're much more savvy and uh, well-read than I was at, at their age or, or am now, probably. Um, but they, there was a kind of belief that the Labour Party could do all of these things, and it cannot do all of these things. The Labour Party is... Is is like Morrissey that he will only ever let you down. The Labour Party is <laughs> perhaps with the same affection for flags now. Or who knows? But 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 is there is there something? Does that mean you reject all Westminster politics? No, I don't think that's all. You need at some points at some kind of hand on national lever. But you need to be realistic about what the Labour Party is there to do. It's it's not a, a, a force for. Um, for, for radicalism, for speculative politics. It's, it's fascinating to me that somewhere like Preston has got as far as it has, given that it's a Labour, Labour Council. Okay. I mean, the, 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 the final thing I want to throw in before we, we, we clock off, and I promise we would clock off, is architecture. Because, of course, that is a sort of thread that runs throughout this. Every single borough essay is accompanied by a set of uh, of buildings that we recommend that readers go and, and visit or, or, or go and learn about. Um, and, you know, that is sort of what people mostly associate open city with, although we do to kind of do other things as well. Um, so it's a bit of an open question, but like, Owen, what do you think, what do you think the kind of architectural manifesto of the alternative guide to the London boroughs is? Well, most of it's about housing, um, because everything is really about housing. Um, almost like, if I could go through, like, you can practically, it's, it's so much harder to like find ones that aren't about housing. Um, <laughs> like, there's one about Harrow Civic Centre, and there's one about, um, hang on, there's one about Whitechapel High Street, which isn't all housing. The Enfield um, one is all factories, isn't it? It's all old, the Enfield one is all old The Enfield one's got a lot of factories. Um, there's one office block. There's a bus. Um, there's some schools. And there's a library and there's some more factories in, in uh, Brentford. But about 20 of the 33 essays are about housing. And the degree to which everyone in London obsesses about housing but doesn't really seem to have a much conception of what can be done about it is sometimes quite depressing. It does, you do get the sense of kind of having to have the same conversations again and again and again and again. But I think 
One of the things that I sort of like about a lot of London housing, and which actually is a thing that it's not unique in in the UK, but which it do, does much better than everywhere else, is that it does have a huge quantity of very, very, very good social housing. And for much of the last kind of 40 years, that's been treated as a problem. You know, um, the people that live in it are treated as a problem. The buildings are treated as a problem. And until very recently, most local authorities would generally seem to relate to their housing about how can we get rid of this stuff? Um, how can we offload this onto someone else in the case of either a housing association or a arm's length management organization? Um, how do we, you know, uh, how can we do something more sexy? You know, the, the, the famous thing of Southwark's uh, director of regeneration in the early 2000s being like social housing, concentration of social housing, attract the wrong people. You know, we need to um, get different people in here and that will, you know, I don't know quite what that's supposed to do or make it a little wonderful in a way that's never quite explained. Um, but um, so the fact that so much of the book is about housing is kind of like a way of talking about the, the stuff that this is kind of, the kind of mundane but interesting things in London. Um, and I'm always kind of like, you know, why there isn't a kind of competition. There was a, there was a thing like, uh, which was occurred to me recently. There was a, a guy called Tom Barry that used to write, who, who um, died a few years ago and he used to write an excellent blog on the London mayoralty um, called Boris Watch. Um, and he was always an interesting person to kind of talk to online about kind of London politics, but also about London housing. And he would always kind of bring up the LCC tenement, the basic LCC tenement that was developed in the 20s and built en masse for about 15 years. And would be kind of like, why, why isn't it, that, you know, that the left in London isn't advocating for like, you know, a, a competition for the, the, G, the GLA tenement, let's say, you know, the, the simple block of flats that can work pretty much in any area of London that you could build thousands of. Um, and there isn't really, you know, instead everything has to be amazing and everything has to be special and everything has to be world-class and everything has to be the greatest city in the world. And a lot of what makes London interesting are things like the LTC Tenement, the Georgian House, you know, the, 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 the GLC Maisonette, you know, the kind of, just these kind of, the, the, the Camden Council flat, the Lambeth Council flat, just these things that are very, very kind of straightforward and reproducible that make a lot of people's lives a lot better. And, you know, this kind of like obsession with the world-class, I think, is an active kind of like, actively sort of stands in the way of of sorting that out. Um, as does, I think, the obsession with kind of rising land values, I think. Um, this is this is one thing where I, I, I actually once sort of briefly um, invited into City Hall by someone that I, I shouldn't name, not Sadiq Khan, um, but it was, it was during his mayoralty, his first term. And they were like, what do you think, you know, it was a kind of like, what do you think we should, what, what ideas do you have then? you know, come in, trot, come up with your fancy ideas. And I was kind of like, uh, I'd just come back from um, Seoul. And um, I'd come back from um, this this amazing lecture by the then mayor of Seoul, who actually um, recently committed suicide in disgrace. But let's move, let's, let's forget about that for a moment. Um, and um, and he just been had this kind of talk about like how he thought Seoul should stop growing. And that was one of the big mayoral policies. Aside from the fact they were going to build more social housing and they were going to have the kind of municipal architects department, which they built up, do interesting things. They were very much like, we've done all the growth we need to do. We've built up this very, very wealthy, huge city. 
Um, we're now going to, you know, try and make it work for the people that live in it. And this isn't very radical. This is, this is, you know, this is like a centre-left mayor in a kind of big capitalist city going like, we're going to stop doing this. Um, we don't necessarily need to, you know, um, flog our flats in MIPIM. Um, you know, we don't necessarily need to, like, add on another few million people. Um, we can just kind of make try and make this thing nice. And I thought, isn't that nice? And there was just a kind of, like, no way, growth is far more important. We're, we're, growth, growth, growth. Okay, fine. Um, does anybody else want to come in on this question of architecture? I'm not entirely convinced the book is entirely about housing. I feel like there's loads mostly, of... Mostly, mostly. Maybe the essays are, but the little chunks at the end of the essays have an enormous... You know, there's pubs in there, there's theatres in there, there's landscape strategies in there, uh, there's a rammed earth shelter <laughs> in a school playground that stops oh, the this is true. Oh, smashed by aeroplanes driving over the top of them. Um uh but yeah i mean what what is what there's a question in the audience um uh this is from james baraclow baraclow uh who is asking what is the panel's favorite contemporary building in london that young architects should go and see um i think you should answer this first then i think you should I, well i can, I'll, I'll i'll have a go at it but i was going to try and spin it out into sort of asking like what is the role of an architect in this mad city, is there anything an architect can do? Are we just kind of slaves to whoever happens to be driving the Haringey development vehicle? Or uh, is there something that architects can achieve that transcends, um, I don't know, transcends the kind of conventional limitations of uh, what architectural labor is capable of? Um, I'll have a go at trying to answer that question. Um, I would say, James, why are you interested in contemporary architecture? Like, I like contemporary architecture. There's lots of good stuff around. But actually, the stuff that is under threat of demolition by these councils who are obsessed with growth and with land prices is not built in the last five years by definition. So I would recommend going to see Central Hill Estate by Rosemary Sternstert, realised under when, when Ted Hollenby was in charge of the Lambeth um, Architects Department. Uh, it's an, it's a fantastic estate, uh, you know, one of the kind of, uh, you know, the best ha council housing estates of South London, um, arguably of the country, and it's going to be knocked down. It's going to be knocked down because the, the council want to densify, they want to build bigger, taller things there. Uh, and so that's a building that, well, it's a huge complex, you know, hundreds, hundreds of people live there. It's not just a building, it's a, it's a whole place. Uh, and it might not be around for very much longer because of this kind of growth obsession that Owen's talking about. So I think I'd sort of cheat the question and I'd advise you to ignore your impulse to sort of focus on shiny new things and instead go and see some of the older stuff that is genuinely at risk of demolition. Um, but I'll put the panel, the, the question to the, the panel as you've asked. Uh, are, what, what, what would you be, the, what would be the places that you would recommend going to see if you're um, I mean, everyone always kind of mentions um, Peter Barber, so I will try not to mention Peter Barber. But I do think that if anyone should be doing the kind of like, what should the London tenement be, he's obviously doing it. I like the fact that Peter Barber basically has like a, a, a quite small repertoire. There's like a basic type. There's like a few basic types and you just build them on mass. I think that's good. 
and they're always very good. And a lot of them are social housing, um, or they're not the one near me in Camberwell. Um, but the things that I tend to kind of find interesting or sort of inspiring in, in London architecture are usually sort of adaptive reuse things. And they're often kind of like accidental um, reuse. Um, it's actually, I think during the pandemic, they decided to finally demolish the Elephant and Castle shopping centre because they knew that at any other point they would face the, the bitter resistance of the people. Um, but, you know, as the people weren't allowed to defend it, it's now gone. Well, it's half gone. Um, but I was always fascinated by the way that that had sort of um, sort of grown quite organically. And I was always sort of like, could an architect actually do this and, you know, sort of encourage something like this and make it good? And there's quite a lot of proposals actually for the, the Ward's Corner Market and Seven Sisters that have something something of that quality of sort of trying to encourage that kind of like gradual um, development and, 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 and change um, rather than discourage it or kind of like, just stick a Franco Manca on it. Um, the, um, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm sort of have a love hate thing with Peckham levels for that reason. Um, and that I love the Peckham Plex and hate everything else about it. Um, but I'd always kind of like um, found that a really interesting way of kind of treating the kind of odd spaces of London, you know, kind of like huge disused car park connected to 80 shopping mall. You know, the first thing that, um, that I think most um, planners would do is like, how can we get rid of this? Which is why I think it's really um, interesting how it's 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 been kind of like kept and made and made stranger rather than less strange. Um, actually, probably the best example of those sort of adaptive reuse things that I can think of recently is not in London at all, but it's in Newcastle, and is the um, Star and Shadow Cinema in Newcastle, um, which kind of used to be a sort of sort of vaguely anarchist social space and um they kind of you know moved into an old building and kind of got it and renovated in a very interesting way and and london really needs more places like that you know kind of like interesting social centers and things like that that are kind of um adapted by architects rather than them kind of like you know zapping them away for shiny tap um so None of these are an architect as such. Um, <laughs> sorry. Pete, I mean, Peter Barber is a very, very good, very contemporary suggestion. So uh, that, that more than fits the bill. Rosa, do you, do you have an, an answer for, for James of, of a, a project he should go and see or people should go and see? I'm also going to avoid the question. Um, I think I just wanted to say maybe something that brings it back to the book a little bit, which is, again, I'm very much an imposter in this discussion because I am not an architect and spend most of my life working with and talking to architects. So I think it's an interesting point that you bring it back to architecture in the end, or, you know, the book is about architecture or not about architecture, that we, we had quite a lot of discussion about the cover and the title and whether it should be, whether it should include the word architecture and like full disclosure, we're doing another book this year with Open City, and I, which I'm working on, and we're having the same discussion. And architecture becomes the sort of Trojan horse that is there in the background, and it's the backbone of the book, but it's actually not really about architecture. It's about people and about the social life of, of a city and how you how architecture feeds into that, um, which anyone can relate to. And so in that sense, I suppose what what I think is really nice about what the book was trying to do and what good architectural publishing can do is 
present that subject for the lay person, let's say, that the non-architect like me, in a way that makes it exciting and engaging and that any building can be the building that you should go and see because it's around the corner from you and it's the library or it's the swimming pool. And yeah, that that's, I guess, <laughs> me as a non-architect. Um, I, I spend a lot of time listening to architects talk about how powerless they are in relation to development and things like this. Um, but actually good, good books, good architectural publishing can bridge that gap in a way that's quite quite special. And I think this this book kind of does. I'm getting a little emotional now. Um, Cheering up. Uh, that other book, if people are interested, is called Public House, A Cultural and Social History of the London Pub. And it will come out in September, but it is available for pre-orders if you are interested in a sort of architectural take on the social history of London's pubs. Um, Aditya, do you have a, a building that you are going to recommend to our audience that they should go and see? Or are you going to dodge the question like the rest of us? Is this our last go? I think so, yeah. In that case, let me dump that question. Um, the thing I would really hardly recommend upon, especially um, this audience, uh, kind of TWT audience, is basically um, drop all the rubbish about a Green New Deal and start focusing upon livability. I, I really take my cue from what Owen said about the, the mayor of Seoul and thinking about just putting a limit on growth and how well all people um, and, and trying to ensure that all people get access to the services, um, the income they need to, to live well. That, I think, is the real challenge. Not grand projets, not fancy new buildings, none of that stuff. Um, at some point, you will reach a point at which the mainstream Labour Party thinks it's got uh, the perfect configuration of flags and retail policies, and Labour left think they've got some wild and really impressive idea that brings together canes and climate change and job creation. It is rubbish. Forget about it. Focus on livability. Think about the people who live down your street and what they need to live well. That's where all politics should start from. Fantastic. Um, that is a really, really good note to end on. I'm really grateful to all three of you for joining us. Um, we're in a sort of weird Zoom bubble, so we, you know we're not able to see the rest of you. But thank you for joining. I hope it was a, a, a stimulating conversation uh, to listen to, and I'm really grateful for the questions as well. Um, I just want to say one more thank you to the speakers, but also to TWT for inviting us. It was very kind of you, and we appreciate it. And if you don't support TWT, please do. They're an extraordinary organization who need our input. And if you do want to get a copy of uh, the Alternative Guide to the London Boroughs, um, you can do so at a 40% discount for one more hour. Um, or the pub's book. It's all good. <laughs> Fantastic. Shall we end it there, Sam? Is that okay for you? Yeah, that's brilliant. Thanks so much, Finn. Thanks, everyone. Um, so, uh, yeah, like, like Finn just said as well, if you um, fancy supporting our work, um, we'd really, really appreciate that. Just head to uh, bit.ly slash TWT donate. There's a, a kind of ticker thing going along now where you can um, see that link. Um, also, check out our new series of TWT FM. Go to anchor.com 
FM slash TWT FM. We've got some incredible episodes on football fandom, dance, pubs, bathhouses, and a fantastic episode on Kill the Bill. Um, we're on uh, at TWT underscore now on Twitter, The World Transformed on Facebook and Instagram. Um, and yeah, like Finn mentioned, you can still get the alternative guide to the London boroughs with a 40% discount if you quote the world transformed at shop.open-city.org.uk. Um, thanks so much for joining us. Stay safe. See you soon. Is every, are we all still on?